Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Good evening. Welcome to The Poetry Project. Yes. Exclamations of excitement. That was sort of redundant. My name is Arielle Goldberg, and I'm the Friday Night Coordinator here. And um, I'm encouraging you all to grab a copy of our free newsletter. Um, and I'm just going to make a few announcements about upcoming events. And um, I'm very, very excited to be hosting and have you all in the room tonight to hear Vicki Now and Jason P. Smith. So let's give them a warm round of applause. We are merging machine and mouth, eye and lens, triggered through the thumb that grips, finger pads glue, pointers impression, what's your mark? Vicky now writes of and around satiation, not being of impossibilities of language and its little earthly intermediaries. The unquenchable, ungovernable, as muse and inviting objects always to animate the portal of Ekphrasis. In V's book, Sheet Machine One, there's a poem for every second of a video artwork, but the recounting does not meld itself as praise. It's more like a door in a creaky mansion that could rotate you to another roomy universe. Instead of a mansion, though, we have the page and V's minute unfolding. She writes, still the stillness, Becoming counts on words of body, object, object, body. There is something about provocation and space for the reader to guess, to interject. What do you mean, transgender performance art as identity? As the last line of the first poem of the book, I have to keep reading. And that's from the old philosopher, which I'll just plug and say it's for sale on the back table. Okay, now I lost my place. As if the line of poetry is a medium-sized headline, accidents blast, the eye scans to pick up other clues in this binoculated atmosphere with nebulous tongues on display. Reading the old philosopher where surgical transplanting of God and families with symbols that I want to rename literals, I'm somehow reminded of anatomy, dancing with its tight bond to bones, veins, and muscles. I clearly don't have a medical vocabulary. But a few years ago, there were these ads on the subway for Body Worlds, which was at the Discovery Times Square Museum, a sort of science-themed tourist trap. This three-year-long show was always being extended due to its popularity. And while the publicity materials online now say it's closed, um, their statement is still open. Gunther von Hagen's Body Worlds was the original human anatomy exhibition. Um, it's an inspiring, immersive exhibit that challenges our bodies um, that face the 21st century. So I'm reminded of this show, and maybe some of you remember those really unnerving posters on the subway for Body World when reading V's work because of her great power with revealing. Um, she slows down looking and feeling simultaneously in a landscape completely internal but casually externalized. She writes, if you don't mind picking up after my diaper. 
Biblical myths, Yodas, and memories of first lovers emerge as though condiments, as though backup singers to the awesomely bizarre universe she constructs. Please help me in welcoming Vicki now. Thank you, Ariel, for your wonderful introduction. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I'm going to um, read um, a poem, I guess, um, from a call Super Aroused Woman During Sandstorms. Um, I haven't. Yes. Um, thank you. I haven't read this for a while, so I thought I'd give it a shot. <laughs> Who is willing to stand by the throat glance and watch saliva turn into silver? Do elephants glance at each other or do their tears get in the way? Their ears are blocking the rain from getting into uh, their cheekbones. But rain does not rain sideways. In fact, rain rains down vertically. The elephant think this is a big problem, horizontal rain. The problem with horizontal rain is that it is devoted purely to dust and sand and not liquid. Liquid is blackmailed by gravity, and gravity feels liquid as a thread through its life centrifugal force. Gravity is afraid of man-made hoses. Gravity is afraid of other horizontal potential. Even sandstorms do not move absolutely horizontal. They slant just slightly at an angle. Perhaps sandstorms love telling the truth. Sandstorms love other people's open zippers. This is why it's important during sandstorms to cover eyes, ears, and mouth, but also uh, genitals. After all, vaginas are created with lips. If coated with saliva and sand, they become Velcro, performing almost like a makeshift zipper, turning an unfortunate zipperless situation to a zipperful thing. But the penis has nowhere to go. It can't be Velcro unless it enters some type of female organ during a sandstorm. But even then, who is interested in pointed Velcro that won't open and close like hands, doors, and lips? But must the penis wait for a windy day to be Velcro? Only on a windy day does a penis get an opportunity for the backward whiplash of an accelerating ejaculation an ejaculation that points its finger back at the penis. Even on a windy day, it's not completely secure either. What if the wind that carries the sand is deaf to the west side of the hemisphere? If the wind is moving in the same direction of the ejaculation, then it only extends extraordinarily more the gap between the ejaculation and the penis. The penis and the sand can't stop wool gathering about turning into temporary Velcro. Men do not experience vagina envy during a sandstorm. They just envy Velcro. Velcro is wonder wonderful in many senses. It is 
sonically uh, marvelous. Uh, it's an addiction. The sound as one tears one strip of Velcro from itself is just absolutely orgiastic. Who would want to have sex if one is in possession of Velcro? One could spend all day separating one Velcro from another and dip one's ears, ears in the sonic bath of compulsory Velcro separation. The sound that emits from the tearing apart of Velcro sounds like two pulsating clitorises who knows furniture or ambient music too well. It is hard to find non-man-made Velcros these days. One walks by two men kissing and one desires to compliment. I love, love, love your Velcro. Sapphic fornication is tedious for women who grow out their pubic hair. Liquid makes the hair sticky and is and if it's matted down, and two women making love with each other, it's like spending an evening at the ER, removing bandages from the skin of motorcycle accidents victims. But sandstorms are pretty on women and on elephants. But what about two cacti who sit side by side? What about them? The next one I'm going to read is from the old philosopher, my collection, um, Night Boat. And that one is, um, the first one I'm going to read is called The Day God Smokes My Grandmother. God pulls my grandmother out of a finely made a secret pack made of human tobacco and lonkans red earth and bed sheets as long as a rubber tree. My family, all 20 of us, my grandmother, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, all lie in a large a cigarette cot, call a bed with tin poi bed sheets pulled to our chins. We lie in rows on top of each other over soft bones while my uncle steps out into my grandmother's grapevine. He withdraws a secret from his jean pocket and drags a smoke, a cigarette smoking a cigarette. Meanwhile, God pulls my grandmother out of her cigarette bed. She is a wedge between my first aunt and my second aunt. He thumps her head against the wooden lid of the well and lights my grandmother's head up. A fluttering of smoke is steam out of her toes. God inhales and exhales the soul of my grandmother until she withers and becomes an accordion of ash. Then God licks the rest of my grandmother across our neighbor's spinach garden. God and my uncle takes turns smoking, while God nearly fin finishes nearly a pack of us, one by one. My uncle still ponders over his last three, sitting in their nearly empty compartment. My uncle stares into the ashtray of his hand and sobs until his hands becomes suit. We stay inside of our floorboard secret case and ponders when God is going to develop lung cancer from smoking us. Not long ago in Lankan, God hand rolls his own cigarettes. God licks the sides of our bed sheets with his wet tongue and rolls me into a thin, tobacco, a burrito. God smokes my cousin first, the one who was run over by a train in my uncle's backyard near my grandmother's grapevine. God, the chronic smoker, like his cigarettes, age three, short and stumpy. 
God doesn't like to smoke me. I smell too much like a conflicting mixture of lavender and walleye. Um, I'm going to read one of my favorite um, uh, poems from uh, the old philosopher. Um, it's, called um, it's called Despotic Hush. I have this fantasy in the open meadow of baking my virgin body for her. In the winter, strawberries, berries so red, of floating meekly and nakedly, of feasting on snow. She is standing at the great crossing, her eyes longing, aching in the distance, gazing far into the dark flesh of the musky, a desolate night. Her flesh uh, to fill me, so velvety blue, her blouse filled with blue meads and prairie, standing there in suspended despair, such as the first half of the 20th century of her body. Her skirt heats earls like an oven. Much later, on a less controversial evening, she's on her euphratic knee, sucking my clitoris dry like the bone of the small, a desiccated delude. Not long ago, inside the Elohis horse, my arms around her waist, the geology of desire, traces fingers as lineage preheated around my clavicle, a necklace of wild pearls and rivets a rowing for God, while I hold her form tightly around my body. Was her kiss a primable, or was my longing impartial? I complicated our cycle of dispute, her canon with my canon, with despotic hush and rush, forward, backward, a little bit in time, when her face is buried in my neck, Jacob's tongue undulating on his baron's mother's chest. I suffused the history of Babylonian exile by closing my eyes and closing her eyes. If I had to hold something in captivity, why not her revulsion for dirty fat, wraps in loincloth, fever go, and rasping rain? Had I resented the raw meat of human life, the thick temple of her desertion, she and I, our flesh a tight in the prairie, when I lift the golden blouse above her head, and set our timer for disarray. And she is sympatric and beautiful, and I am naked, a raspy soft, and rustic above her, rubbing inertia in motion and baking sheets and red wheelbarrow, our eager meat tight, white, a sedimentary fucking, the vigils of kernel core nucleus, the nup and chis of my tight muscle clutching her swollen inner thighs and the animal flesh of her sucking on my neck, on my tongue, on my nipples, on my thighs, these uh, divisions of want and the harsh grotal depth of my moaning and so quiet the grass beneath the solid muscle bound weight of her thrusting up into me so that when yeast unites with sugar and salt and the construction of hand on top of hand, arms wrapping pussy to pussy, fingers interlace hers and mine, and of my, bar my arcing back bent like an eel into a crescent, 
the descending stratosphere of flower-woven clouds that aroused the Euphrates River to speak to swine and exiles while the hour keeps bakes the earth and the dormant culture inside me sees a biogeopolitical orgasm makes the second bell toe shaking its metallic skirts once again like as she widens her circle of ecstasy. It seems all instrumental afterward the way our desire expands on a wet grass as our bodies shake and I am in her arms and I am inside her breasts overlapping breasts like a pose needed dough over a pose needed dough. I think how seamless the flesh is when it wants to gel and how such a plant with long, narrow leaves, wild and tireless and flattened, is so capable of offering post-pomegranatic and post-pastry pleasure relinquished by Demeter's daughter to a few fear-driven souls sitting in a semi-semiotic picture of sorrow. When the night drops its monolithic elevation, and she is pouring her tongue into my mouth. I think, gee golly, how can we make a this last? And how much I love baking on grass. Um, yes, I think I'm going to show um, a video uh, called In Good Diet, Ernal Bath. A film called In the Diurnal Bath. It's a film that um, uh, there's a poem called In the Diurnal Bath in this collection as well. And so it's going to be presented, but it's not sonically presented, it's uh, visually presented. It's going to be in conjunction with um, an excerpt from my novel, Fish in Exile. Um, it's the excerpt is from page 106. Um, so the movie uh, combines both my poetry and my fiction, um, my nonfiction into one landscape and my artistic uh, um, aesthetic, I guess. Um, see, uh, mm, there's a scene about bodybuilding. Um, it's not related to uh, Kathy Acker. Um, <laughs> just so you know, it's a, it's, it was a dress uh, one of the students at Brown asked me an advice on what what to do um, um, if one graduates from an MFA with a poetry or fiction degree, what, what you do with your life. And so I responded with, with the following answer. And so um, it's 10 minutes. It was more difficult than what she had captured. The falling light, the rind of limoncello, 
The tall, half-Korean, half-Russian vortex was holding my face hostage. Black white heels, exquisite, tight leather pants. My friends have drifted far into the bathroom. Their faces, floating plastic coins, visible, blurry, pressed to the corridor of the bar doors. In the backdrop, the clinking drops of slot machines. My mouth was busy, my lungs were busy. She was going to take me home. First into her mouth, and much later sprawled out on her condo. The Vegas light hadn't fallen, and the traffic had been halted by the soundtrack of 2 a.m. on repeat. She drank too much, but drove me to her place anyway. You're going to be safe. You're going to be safe, she kept on repeating, while swirling in her forerunner. In a Vegas bathroom, she drank my gaze, and in one glance offered me her entire wardrobe of feminine ardors, breasts, skin, thong, fingers, tongue, eyelashes. She had the perfect symmetry of East and West, submerged beneath. I had no idea what corridor to exit. Taking my hand into hers, she informed me that she used to be a circus performer, a contortionist who fit into a nine-inch box, and an elephant trainer, but, but now she was just a high-paid masseuse. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. on my hand while aiming for my lips, swollen with the polyamorous light flickering back and forth between the cracks of my teeth. She held my tongue in place for a very long time, as though my tongue was a stargazer that she must corner. At last, she released me back into the glittering disco light and asked me what kind of poetry I wrote and if I had them memorized, and if so, if I didn't mind reciting. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. She had just, in one night, gambled away grand. Her partner of five years was never around. Her father died of pancreatic cancer. She poured this information out as if they were pocket change she must get rid of, as if they were a burden dangling in her slack pocket or making too much noise and stirring the strides she made. Writing doesn't work out, I'll become a bodybuilder. If writing doesn't work out, I'll become a bodybuilder. To relieve the stress, I told her I would try not to be home tonight. My mother helped me dress. If you must seduce a woman, this is the way to go about it, my mother informed me casually. Treating me professional like one of her clients, she donned me in high heels, dark clothes that spoke to my curves, and told me if I came home tonight, she might as well fold her business. It was her business to make women sexy. Her fucking was heartbreaking. She had changed into a cotton dress exhibiting her exquisite thighs, and she sprawled out on her sectional sofa. She wanted to watch La Vie en Rose at 2 a.m. with me, and so we watched La Vie en Rose at 2 a.m. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder.
If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. I thought people just fucked and shuffled immediately into amnesia. I wasn't prepared for Edith Piaf and her. So we watched Edith Piaf and her sad, murmuring voice as it echoed through the different corridors of her condo-like teabag chimes. She petted her cat, and I wondered what her partner, thinking deserting this intoxicating island for more circus life. I saw a few scars on her arms and wrists fading lightly and asked about their history. From training elephants, she informed me, sometimes they had gotten close. She petted the forehead of the cat some more as she told me more about her childhood in the circus. Her mother and father did it, and they taught her, and so she did it. Her father died of pancreatic cancer, a horrible death, she told me, in so much pain. She sent money to her mother to help her cope, though she struggled with the domineering effect of her mother. There was so much wind in her voice as I listened. She spoke about her father, her bitter relationship with her mother some more. I felt like I leaned back into time, into a place where heartaches would no longer exist. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. This immaculate aura of her feminine exquisiteness all there available for her partner and I was there instead a fable perhaps on a non-existent mantle of falling light. Though I had been drawn to women emotionally, she was the first woman I was drawn to sexually. In the most provocative way possible, I had come from Iowa, land of bovineness, cows, and of white people. Russian felt the hunger of my desire for her or perhaps the music from the film had become too unbearable. She kissed and peeled me away layer by layer. She removed inch by inch of her dress, her height, her languished melancholy and by then had already pinned me to the sofa. Tell me what you want and I please you, she kept on repeating firmly and gently as she entered me. I remember her lifting her long finger from the curtain that hid my hierarchy of grief and pleasure and began to surround me with a silence. Much later when my lungs had the capacity to develop their own photographic lenses, the vapor of sorrow I felt became my own pleasure. What she had done was trafficked my clitoris through enclosure by zooming in and out, making me exposed before exposure. In retrospect, after I studied what had happened to me, viscerally, literally I had become a tripod of some sort, her fingers, the eye that pointed toward light and perception, and somewhere inside of me, I deflected the images of ecstasy and melancholy and distilled them somewhere along the uterine wall. During her opening of me, perhaps it made room for Edith Piaf's voice to siphon itself into me as well. So perhaps 
what had been displayed in the theatrical uterine wall of mine was not a silent film of pain or pleasure, but perhaps an opera of hysterical beauty. Our pleasure brought me into her bedroom. The bed appeared as if it were on the floor, but upon closer inspection in the bright Vegas morning, it was a very low platform made out of wood. The platform lifted the bed off the ground so it appeared as if it were floating like a boat. Empty water bottles were ubiquitously scattered. After pinning me down into the bed, she fell asleep. I stared up at the empty sky at her ceiling. I was experiencing an extreme degree of insomnia as the loneliness began to climb the rope of my body into the first chamber of my heart. Thank you so much, V. Let's give Vicky now another round of applause. We're now going to welcome to the podium John Godfrey, who is going to give a short introduction, and then Yinyilu, who's the Friday night curatorial assistant, um, will also introduce Jason P. Smith. So please welcome John Godfrey. I found out about Jason's writing because of a mentor fellowship that I was participating in. I'm going to be a, a mentor, right? I read a lot of pages of application samples. And first of all, Justin's quite involved with Kavi Kanam and the, he's attended Kalalu workshops. And I found from many of these applications some of the more interesting stuff was people who had been involved with Kavi Khanum and, and Kalalu. Uh, his work struck me. I'm not going to go through his resume because I can't recall it. I'm more interested in that. When I read him, I was struck by, and I've been reading and learned how to read very closely for 50-some years. I saw that the guy is there, and he's the only person there. And he's had to be young. I didn't know his age until recently. I'm like 2.95 times his age. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> is very youthful, intense. He has a little bit of rooster. He also seemed to have been pretty well read. I mean, he was doing up-to-date stuff. 
He also has very good diction. He makes good word choices. And I, like I, I'm a ball buster when I read, and I, I couldn't find any problems. Uh, he also, he also uh, I met Jason for the first time yesterday. We talked for a couple of hours or more. And I told him that I use this word in its classic sense. There's something naive about his poems. You get the impression from his poem that this is the first time he's writing this poem. If you can understand what a distinction that would be in my mind. Uh, not meaning he hasn't got experience. It's just this is the first time he's doing this one. And that's a feeling you get from good poems. And he's the boss. He directs the, the way the poem is going to go. And it isn't going to be full of the answers. There are going to be things missing that are very important. And they create a tone of ambiguity. And for a guy my age, the, it's almost obvious that you can't understand shit when you're alive. And that, that comes through in, in the poems. Uh, we do it, but we don't really understand stuff. But he tells you where you're going to go next. He says, uh, no, over here, this way. You may not expect that, but he's going to make you go in that direction. And it stands up. It stands up. Uh, and he also, I, what I like was, I like seeing young people who got their eye on some big shoes. And he's done a lot of work. And he seems like a real poetry rat. And there's a very good chance he can grow into some big shoes. And teasingly, I say in the words of that great American sage, Yogi Berra, uh, it's kind of ridiculous to pay attention to predictions, especially about the future. But uh, come spring, he will be here again when the uh, fellowships uh, participants give a reading, when is it like May or June, something like that. I believe it's going to be a reading. And I look forward to hearing them for the first time. I've probably had a chance to read a number of these poems, but I, I'd like to see how he does it. So here's Jason P. Smith. Or no, I guess there's somebody else who's... Okay. Jason P. Smith. Jason P. Smith was once a dancer, and now he writes poems. His, what? It's, wait, it's lit? It's lit, it's, it's lit, so, the, and the lights are lit. Um, <laughs> his poems are caught in questions of presence, of how a poem can direct one to oneself. Whether it's prose poems or footnotes, Smith's speakers speak their uncertainty, turning over stone after stone through form and image. In his poem, the subject seems to fall apart in your hands. His speaker listens to a you whose words, though coherent, jumble together until words blend into one. It happened. It just happened. It never happened. The reader doesn't know what it is, but Smith uses this blur of language to emphasize how they slowly confound each other, one negating the last to create an arc of uncertainty. Did it happen? Could it have been the thought, the perception of the thing itself? I think Smith's point is to show, as he says in an untitled poem, that the how is difficult when the thing turns back on itself. What if it, what if the thing, is the very way we step into presence in the world, the sense of ourselves? In an interview with Fields Magazine feature Jose Olivares and Aziza Barnes, 
Smith states that his worth is to investigate it, uh, is to investigate why it might be uncomfortable to look at oneself and to place a self that feels accurate on the page without the pressure of unloading the entire self. Several of his poems I read were after photographers and artists such as Lorna Simpson, Kara Mae Weems, and Glenn Ligon, whose work he examined for their approaches to the subject, how a subject may be found in others, in objects, or the complete display of one's own body. In an examination of subjectivity where the self may be beyond one body, poems like Contextual appear. Uh, in Contextual, Smith's entire poem is a footnote, one that asks the reader a series of considerations. It begins with a blood-red summer, a wreckage and how a line roams to break it. In Contextual, Smith places violence, masculinity, and the self side by side so that the ugly music of manhood becomes the everything and nothing of his speaker's hands. The implication of context in the creation of the self appears again in A Question of Rain, where a dead boy is still dead when filled with what isn't his. The filling of the self mixes with erotic desire, where one may need something, love, care, consideration, pleasure, but may be asked again and again to endure and hold what someone else demands. Jason P. Smith says in the Affirmation interview that he's a queer brown kid who happened to go to a really dope school and who decided to dance for the rest of his life and then changed his route to write poems. My sense is that he's not done dancing. That his poems are about getting across the whole damn floor of the self, a space that needs someone working uncertainly against the self that is given and inviting a self that could be had. Please welcome Jason P. Smith. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, John, um, for selecting me for this fellowship. Um, thank you, V, um, for the amazing work uh, that I've been able to experience of yours, uh, both here and not here. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, I am, as <laughs> in that wonderful introduction, um, I am you know, pretty much a baby poet. Uh, so I'm really excited to kind of share some of my work with y'all. Um, I am. The manuscript that I'm working on is called Recursion, um, and basically, um, you know, I kind of like don't want to read poems because that introduction said it all. Um, basically, what I'm looking at is um, I grew up with a lot of iconography, right? Um, so, like, I went to Catholic school forever, right? Um, and I think that uh, in my family, like, obedience, right, is like the highest level of being a person, right? So, like, if someone like gives you a thing, right, to do or like be or say, um, then that's your life, right? Um, so. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in what I've taken in to like become a person, um, which is like a lot of like kind of fucked up shit if you live in America and are brown, right? Um, so yeah, uh, I meet a lot of people in this manuscript, and I'm just gonna like shut up and read poems. Um, so it's lit. Also, I'm gonna say that a lot. Um, that's my exclamation, if you will. Um, the first person we meet in this poem is Diana Ross. Um, I really love her a lot, um, and this poem is called "Back Home We Call Them Slums." Back home we call them slums and traffic a dull feeling. Detroit asks for water and finds Diana, pressure drunk dizzy in a phone booth. The tragedy is when it feels good. Luck chews out a new lineage. Enough babies moan for milk. A body happens. Do you know where you're going to? Do you know a way out? Say murder mean crows, rehearsed walls and whole sounds. 
All it takes is putting it on to pull it off. I am not a very good animal. I talk too much. Let me rephrase. In a final attempt to be soft, I'm scrubbed down to the suture. As usual, following tropes and whittled down to function. There is no praxis for this kind of greed. Why be when I could be precise and almost silent? You should know grace. Grace is the best way for an object to lie. Sometimes I'm sorry and most familiar. Sometimes I fold in better conditions. Watching Paul Mooney hum Amazing Grace post 9-11 while eating hot wings from Crown Fried. Don't try this at home by yourself. We're at war and I'm American again, sleeping at eight like shit. New, visibly cankered, coy, mythologies locked in before morning coffee. There's an order to this. A working list of what makes my teeth white, dick, chicken, everything but solitude. It's unbearable, 12 niggas going to flight school bad. And repercussion is so certain, but you knew that. Peep the joke hiding. I leave him a blues and he leaves me for dead. Who knows about being pathetic yet functional? You got shoes, I got shoes, so I suppose we should be intimate. Maybe just moan at our echoes. It's mostly productive with a punchline involved. I haven't smirked in weeks. In case no one notified you, this is a sad boy hour. It's lit. <laughs> um, also, I'm going to do that sometimes. Um, silence between poems makes me feel weird, so I'm just going to be talking. It's fine. Um, this poem came from a Carl Phillips prompt. Uh, shout out to him. Uh, this is called Of the Question of Self and How It Never Quite Gets Answered. So I've always been a sucker for bondage, the pleasure in the next room editorial at best, falls dictate a temperature, one moment, then another, Mercury's in retrograde, what hasn't been said goes, erections in lieu of actual thought, here the beasts know their names and respond in kind, if one were to adjust the discourse, we could call it a conflict of interest, we're lucky to have some damn sense, Conflict doesn't make marauders of married men, but you can't deny a narrative appeal. Sometimes there is just interest. Some interests suppress function for a purpose. Some functions have no purpose until a need is imagined. Before need, the image is the same. He unzips without confessing anything. Whatever he's eaten is what you are fed. In translation, what it's almost 
is regular in its urgency. Note, I am 24, orchid-shaped, sudden citizen of the sentence and altogether afraid. A machine wakes, punched in and bloodless, and this is how a world gets made. In the small fist of chronology, there's an aftermath. In Crown Heights, it's easier to call me thirsty. My bones made for dim boundaries. Put another way, aperture. Aperture is a hole, and I am sometimes as useful. Another. When he comes, and I come too, nothing ever comes to mind. How are you feeling? You feeling all right? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. See? Call and response. That's what I need. Okay, cool. Um, so another habit of mine, um, which uh, I'm really glad uh, at Crisis was brought up, um, and I'm really glad that I'm reading with B, um, is like, that's kind of like my tool uh, when I'm stuck uh, in order to like not have a reason to not write. I'll just walk to the Brooklyn Museum. Um, <laughs> I'll do uh, an ekphrasis of a particular work. Um, so this is a portrait of the artist as a young man after Deborah Cass. One, no. Because I am afraid to die, it does not matter what I become. Two, unbraided, never is, a document, unteethed yet abundant, of a sentence, but ageless in acquiescence, besides, exploited, a general compulsion of form without color, rhetorical shift regarding lack, the strangeness of an eye, concurrent consummations, systems of wide ruin. In another arrangement, I would know to resign. Here, I'm encouraged, which means insatiable. See, I'm busy, accumulating points in skee-ball, outweighing my names like a real nigga. So I lose the will to live sometimes. There are occasions to clap on the 2-4, and that's cool too. I pass the phrase, effort is beautiful in an Uber I can't afford. Watch a man hang from my apartment building, contemplate the boundaries of my business. I know paradox is presence enough. Nothing about honest is honest. They watch me wound while asking I be careful. Three, what is meant by subjunctive? If I, then you, 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 you. The great thing about having a secret is it stays a secret. And what I'm saying is there's a hierarchy of shit to care about. A sum of bone you recognize. Affirmations. Inevitable nausea. An open-mouthed laugh at a cold sun. Something low-key pretty about private conjunctions. As always, I'm alone. Over context. In summary. I assemble rage without a world. Choose a profitless church. Another would be brave. 
this one's untitled, but it's a poem, I promise. <laughs> the rules are the rules. Something is alive, then ruined in the process of hands. That's my logic. It may not be sound, but it's a logic. I spend my time in between sleep and a common crisis of longing. My own nature a spectacle. Indecisive only in where to map a trauma. Generations, general angst, gentrified buildings. A quick glamour is bound to fall apart. The how is difficult when a thing turns on itself. A lack of translation for far off terrors means a stranger is a stranger. A stranger is beautiful until he is not. What is always known about control? A white hand, a pressure and my neck in the same sentence. How I say it worked in my favor and keep grinding my teeth. Okay, a couple more poems and I'm out of your way, y'all. So for a long time, I was like scared of sonnets or just scared of form in general uh, because I came to poetry so late and I was like, ah, meter, what the fuck? Um, and then uh, I had a, I went to Callaloo uh, and Greg Pardlow was like, don't be silly uh, and made me write a sonnet. Um, <laughs> so this is what came of it. Um, also entitled, also a poem, I promise. <coughs> when I think of the noble past breakfast, I get bored. Amsterdam is far, and low-budget Brooklyn dads are my current demographic. If pettiness was a concern, there'd be no poem. Trapped in a faulty logic of hunger, I scan the block for breadfruit trees and serve tuna under crow ceilings. Punctuation as location spot. Brisk walk in a race to endure. When you get here, I know what's required of an underscore. It's pleasant work pink, mostly puckered, poetics of a power bottom dipped in occasional gold. The peasant in me dies as soon as it sees others grow. I tower over providence, forgotten wife of the morning after, before, and now, a body warming to the ever-changing laws of tourniquet. Don't ask me to write sonnets, y'all, shit will get weird. <laughs> okay, uh, three more poems and then I'm out of your way. Um, I didn't bring anything cool, uh, but um, what I can say is that a lot of these are based off of increases, uh, like and you pointed out. Uh, so uh, Deanna Lawson, like Carrie Mae Weems, um, a bunch of photographers, I'm really invested in like the image. Um, and so yeah, this is one that I wrote after Lorna Simpson uh, called Reenactments with the Volume Down. For six months, prison is simple math, a tally of loins grown foul in their need to compromise. The subject makes nightly attempts to stand like a mother, outrun its own body. Language makes it a cycle, but no one comes from nowhere and lush omens are hard to come by. Look up, a train has left you, neutral and unassuming again. So what if you were what you wanted? So what if the hallways collapse? Find an Uber, finish your SIG, redress the failure on your own time.
Ars Poetica. Y'all should know that this is one in a series. I'm writing a bunch of poems that are titled Ars Poetica because um, I, like, for a long time I didn't get it. Um, and so I just, like, kind of wrote one after the other. Um, so, yeah, this is one of the series. Ars Poetica. <coughs> I don't walk out the house unfinished, remedial as the sound a lung makes, aimed for suture, my obscene song octaves lower and imagined. I think of a miracle, bricks, some other arrangement. Then I get dressed. Then I'm a social pleasure, equivalent and almost human. A short walk out the octave. Songs in an unfinished lung sounds obscene, so the arrangement stays. Make a motherfucker social. A pleasure and a miracle, remedial. Suture to be brick-like, I aim, then aim lower. Um, this is my last one. Thank you so much uh, for hanging out with me. Uh, thank you, V, uh, for that incredible reading. Uh, thank you, Stacy. Thank you, John. Thank you to everybody at the project. Um, this is uh, considering uh, Deanna Lawson's As Above, So Below. Uh, the title is They Look Like Wings If You Squint Hard Enough. No one asks what I mean when I say the word nation. Budged out of a metaphorical paint, counting the steps away from surveillance. Anxiety isn't without its notions of ascent. Neither is anarchy. A more precise matter of heads lopped off before new crowns. A considered decency in smaller circles. I've learned exuberance is one way to sell a sorrow. The other is to give the poem what I do in the dark. Ravenous with decision and revisionist by nature. To what degree do I become of suffering or otherwise? To what is ambition owed? The lyric is the lyric whether or not you're saying much, and in this way, I've been lucky. If a motherfucker dared to take the flash off, send it all upriver and splatter the facade clean, we'd see a politic or pig on a canvas or cutting board or charcuterie, a gape from a gaze a form lost to a focal point, somehow bracketed by solace. If I remain, what? Thank you so much. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.